0: Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Broker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Andrea Pearson.
1: And I'm Joe Lalo.
0: And our guest today is publishing consultant and author Jane Friedman. She has 20 years of experience in the publishing industry with expertise in digital media strategy for authors and publishers. She's the co-founder and editor of The Hot Sheet, the essential publishing industry newsletter for authors, and she's the former publisher of Writer's Digest. In addition to being a professor with The Great Courses and the University of Virginia, she maintains an award-winning blog for authors at JaneFriedman.com. Jane, I made it through the introduction without mangling anything. I'm so proud and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the industry and some of the jobs you've had during those 20 years? Indeed. I started right out of college. In fact, while
2: I was still in college, I worked on the school newspaper and literary journal, and I worked at a local publishing house in Evansville, Indiana that did military histories. Um, and then I had an internship at a Cincinnati publishing house, the big city for me. I'm from rural Indiana, so that was a very big city. So after the internship, they hired me full-time when I graduated, and that's where my traditional publishing experience primarily comes from. So I spent 12 years at a company called F&W Media, and they published a lot of different things. Uh, But the thing that... You would be most familiar with is Writer's Digest and that's uh, where I became publisher, although I worked in a variety of divisions at the company over those 12 years. And then I detoured into academia for for a little while. I did some university teaching and then I got a job offer in publishing again and I thought, well, maybe I'm not done with publishing. And I I went back. Uh, It was a small literary journal um, with one of those really small circulations, but a lot of prestige. <laughs> and it was a big mistake for me to make that, that, uh, that move. So I lasted a couple of years and then I went full-time freelance. And so I have been an independent freelancer consultant since 2014.
0: So that, that pretty much brings us to where we are now. Awesome. And should we ask for, for those who are watching the video for an introduction, there keeps being a tail going past <laughs> and wrapping around your, I'm really impressed that you can talk while like the nose is getting tickled by a tail.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I have Zelda, uh, monopolizing my lap. She's my part-time job. Uh, she's expecting me to be on the couch at this hour. So
3: she's, she's not willing to give up on me yet. And, and she's very pretty too. I, I love she's tabby right? I love Tabby so much. (laughs) Um, so when Lindsay told us that you were coming on the show, I was so excited because I'm like, I know, I know Jane, this is a name I've known for like 12 years, you know, 15 years. I followed you before I decided to even publish, you know? And so, um, you're a lot younger than I expected for how wise you are. (laughs) I was expecting wizened and gray. (laughs) So, so that's really great. Um, um so you've got a really awesome reputation in the industry as being a watch person and educator for authors um and your book your business books basically follow that same trajectory trajectory i can talk um have you ever considered writing fiction and if so what genres and also would you use a pen name and why or why not
2: Mm hmm. So the last time I wrote fiction was probably 18 years ago, I was even in a little writing group with some of my coworkers at the publishing house I worked for. And that's the last time I really made any attempt at writing fiction, I would call it short story literary type of fiction. Uh, when I was, I got a, my degree is in creative writing. So I got a bachelor of fine arts in creative writing and fiction was sort of the thing you wrote. There wasn't a creative nonfiction aspect to that program. There wasn't any sort of what I would call professional development, which is more prevalent now at creative writing programs. And so this, the the, the reason I'm describing this is because <laughs> Like fiction was the thing, like there wasn't anything else that you really did unless you wrote poetry. And that was the path to starving artistdom. So, you know, I, I was, I often thought I might want to do other things. And I worked at the school newspaper and it wasn't until I actually started working in traditional publishing that I realized I, I actually had no interest in writing fiction. <laughs> um, I liked reading it, but I don't think I actually have the talent required to be a storyteller in that way. Like, I don't walk around thinking about strange characters and things that happen to them in another world. Like, my mind just doesn't think that way. And once I realized that, it was easy to just say, okay, I'm, I'll focus on writing other things now.
0: <laughs> so for your creative writing class, were you turning in creative nonfiction for the teacher? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, most of the stories that I wrote were thinly veiled episodes from my own life, uh, which, you know, to be fair, I think that's where a lot of students start. Um, so there, yeah, I, it was, I was just
0: patently not cut out for it. I often write about my own life, but I just had dragons or spaceships or something. So (laughs) spruce it up a little bit. So we're recording this uh, for anybody who comes across it in the future at the tail end of 2020 coming up on Christmas here. What are some of the changes that are going on now in the industry, whether traditional or indie that authors should be paying attention to? There are so many.
2: Um, And I know we're going to talk about
0: lots of different things
2: over the next hour. Um, maybe I'll try dividing it up into some of the things happening in traditional and then indie and, but some of the, some of the changes affect everyone. Um, so I think one of the biggest issues on my mind is how much the big publishers might get involved in the subscription services. So I'm thinking of Kindle Unlimited as well as Scribd, uh, Storytel, whether it's ebook or audio. I'm I just see a lot more, I guess I'd call it pressure, maybe, for, for big publishers to enter that space. Um, and we can get into some of the reasons why uh, as we go. And I, I just wonder what what's going to happen to the market if publishers get into those existing uh, subscription spaces. How will that affect independent authors? Um, also, I wonder if, you know. right now, I'm sure you've heard about the potential acquisition of Simon & Schuster by Penguin Random House. So the big five in the US will likely become the big four. And once you get that many titles under one publishing house, you start to have a viable subscription model just offered by that publisher. So like a just like Disney has its own s- streaming channel now, or HBO has its own streaming channel, I could see Penguin Random House having its own subscription service. So we've already seen that happen with some some smaller niche publishers like O'Reilly who does all of those cute programming books with the animals on the cover. Like they've had their own subscription service for years now. Um, so I'm just that that's one thing I've got my eye on because the subscription market is not going anywhere. That's the prevalent business model for a lot of media. And there are people on the more innovative progressive side of publishing who worry that publishers will get left behind if they stay out of these services for much longer. Um, but we could argue about that, whether that's true. Um, The other thing that's heating up is the audio market. So there are lots of things happening with Spotify and Audible and Apple, and they're all like making, I'm sure you've noticed they're all making like these big deals. Maybe you recently got Audible's invitation. Was it Audible? Uh, I think it was Audible to, or yeah, Amazon invited podcasters to join their platform. So everyone's trying to like grab all the content and do their own originals or exclusives. Um, and so there's this question of whether companies like Spotify are going to get into audiobooks. Are they going to start uh, buying up talents? Are they going to get into narratives? And it's just an open question. Um, and then just looking at how COVID has affected things, I've kind of ignored that up until right now. but you know independent bookstores are certainly in a precarious position. Actually not that many have gone out of business yet, but I think they're going to try and hang on through the holiday season because that's the best season for just about any retailer. So January, February will be it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Do some of them then close up shop? Um, are they going to survive? The, the pandemic? Um, and if they don't, does that business just go straight to Amazon? Um, which, of course, concerns publishers greatly. So those are Maybe I'll pause there. That's that's probably a lot to chew on already. But those are some of the issues that I think have cropped up in 2020 and are going to be, I think, important in the year ahead.
0: Yeah, I wonder if, uh, to some extent, the traditional publishers, publishers by insisting on keeping ebooks priced so high have maybe done it to themselves a little bit, like being pressured into the subscription services where you can get a whole bunch of eBooks for $10 instead of one. Right. Oh, there's no question
2: that their pricing has hobbled them in so many ways. Um, And I think part of it's to prop up the print market um, and, you know, and also to protect some of that bookstore market that still exists, but it's such a small percentage now of sales. Um, I don't know how much longer that strategy makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, you, you mentioned this a little bit. But we'll, I'd like to talk a little bit more. We recently did an episode about audiobooks. And uh, over the course of the last few newsletters, you mentioned a fair bit about the subscription and streaming services uh, getting involved in audiobooks. Like, what do we know about that right now? And what should we know about that?
2: I think the most striking thing is that... Audio is still just, I think, probably in its infancy um, as as a business model. Um, It's still being figured out exactly how how the monetization is going to work on a subscription basis. I'm not sure that the Audible model is going to win the day, uh, which is pretty scary for the U.S. and U.K. publishers, which are used to unit sales. But if you look into the European markets, especially with Storytel, if you look at the Nordic countries, you know, that's uh, they pay based on time consumption. And, you know, like they get paid a certain like I don't know what the rate is, but say like 20 cents a minute or something. Um, So it's it's not like Audible. Um, but when Audible launched its new service in Spain, that was based on a Storytel model, which is paying for time in an unlimited model. So I just I I think that the currently in the Nordic markets, those publishers are seeing more than half of fiction, uh, half of the revenue coming from from places like Storytel. There are other competitors too. And there's not just Storytel, but it just. I just find that incredible that there are certain countries now where audio outsells every other format and it's it's also opening up the backlist for a lot of authors their authors are I don't, they're fighting you know in the market to have their publishers put out their backlist in audio because they know that it's money on the table left on the table if those books aren't available to consumers because that's straight where they go if they've enjoyed an audiobook by the author. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's at top of mind, exactly how the economics of it are going to work. Um, Storytell certainly it keeps beating its growth projections year after year. It's entering into new markets. It's so far avoided the Anglophone markets. Um, I don't think it has any desire at the moment to take on Audible. <laughs> uh, I can't blame them. Uh, but I do wonder what Audible is going to do, especially if Spotify or some other services um, start to encroach on its territory.
1: And uh, would you say that this is a sort of situation where publishers are going to have going to have a leg up, or is it going to be an even playing field with Indies on this sort of thing?
2: It's hard for me to say because I don't <laughs> I'm not here's where a, a dirty secret of mine comes out. I'm not an audiobook consumer, <laughs> so I'm not familiar with like searching for titles through Audible. I don't purchase through Audible. I don't use Scribd. I don't use Storytel. So my my understanding of discoverability on those platforms is limited. And I would love to hear from you guys on what what you're seeing indie titles versus traditionally published titles in terms of visibility, and uh, particularly on Audible. Um, so I don't, I guess I don't know. That's the, the straight answer to your question. I'm not sure what will happen.
3: Yeah, I'm not much of a consumer of audiobooks either. Sometimes I do, but it's very rare. So I'm always like, oh wait, audiobooks still exist. <laughs> um, okay, so you attend a lot of events, both in person and virtual. Um, is it important for authors to go to book fairs, conventions, and other events? And if so, are there any you feel would bring the most value to those on a time or money budget? So I'll
2: open my answer up by saying that on a personal note, like when I started in publishing, um, I was probably the lousiest networker. I did not think about events or conferences as important to my career. Um, it's something that just kind of evolved because of the unique position I ended up being in at writer's digest, uh, which For those who might not know, Writers Digest loves sending out its staff to conferences to speak. And it also hosts its own own conferences as well. So if you were going to be a part of that staff, you were going to be involved with conferences. So it would have never been like this natural thing that I would have gravitated toward. It just didn't really fit my personality, like extreme introvert, not knowing how to engage at parties, this sort of thing. But one, like looking, like looking back over my career, I can see how much this, because I ended up going to maybe six, seven, eight conferences a year in the mid 2000s. And that, that frequency has only increased with time. So I can see a direct relationship between my ability to write good material, to To understand the market, to understand the industry uh, with that conference attendance, because it you just gain so much knowledge in a short amount of time, straight from the people who are often experts or the best people to learn from in the field. And you also get a a lot of if you're listening to panels, or you often get a 360-degree view as well, uh, although it will depend on the conference. So it's even though I wasn't, I still wasn't the best networker. Um, the learning was just, it was like rocket fuel. Um, and then of course what happens is that even if you're a bad networker, you can't help but form some relationships despite yourself. Um, and, you know, whether you're speaking or an attendee, there are people that you keep in touch with. And this is where social media was magic. So, you know, this is social media entered into my career about 10 years then. And so that allowed you to stay in touch with people you had met, uh, or if you saw or, or engaged with someone on Twitter, you would then solidify the relationship at an event. And so that just amplified the effect um, I had two business partners. Uh, I used to have a business partner on the hot sheet, my paid newsletter. I had another venture with a with a partner, and they were people that I met at events or met through social media. And it was just that that exposure through that through networking um, that those relationships happened and really helped my career. So that's, I guess, a long winded answer to yeah, is it important? I think. Your your progress will just be slower if you don't go to events, and I think it's also very lonely. Not and and not to mention that launching a book typically it takes the support of a community, or you need ideally you have some other authors who are involved in that, or you're learning from what other authors are doing rather than trying to figure it out on your own. Um, now, as far as which events. Um, that you should go to or skip. I think it's so individual. It depends on the stage of your career, the genre you're working in, if you're indie or traditional. So, but I think you have to really look closely at the program, um, at the roster of speakers. Do they kind of align with where you want to end up? Uh, and it, it's important to kind of see if you can suss out the values of the conference and what they're trying to emphasize or promote. And Andrea, I know that you host a range of events. I think you have a, I, I listen to this podcast when I actually listen to podcasts, which is during the pandemic hasn't actually been frequently, but when I'm in a car, yours is the podcast I listen to. So I know, Andrea, that you have events because you've talked about organizing them. Um, so I imagine that you are a proponent of, of going to events.
3: I'm, I'm an extrovert. <laughs> I'm like people, 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 people. <laughs> no, but I'm going to say, like, I think what you had to say is very important, but even for not just nonfiction, but for, you know, creative writing, like, it, it just really jumpstarts your knowledge and listening to people who've been doing it for years and they can tell you like things to avoid and, or, and the rules. And if you know the rules, you know, which, how to break them and things like that. And I just learned so much in my very beginning years by attending events. And then (laughs) Lindsay says, I'm like her dog, (laughs) um, extrovert dogs. Um, are there any warning signs that people should watch out for? Um, I will, I'll just share really quickly an experience I had in the very early beginnings. Um, I I ended up paying like over a hundred dollars to go to a seminar put on by a very well-known editor in New York publishing. And it was so awful. Like it was just absolutely horrible. And she was, she was gave horrible advice and was not organized and it was just a huge waste of money. And it was my very first in-person event. And so I'm like, is there something I could have, you know, watched out for or any of our listeners, Mm -hmm. something like warning signs, anything. Wow, that's terrible that that happened. Um,
2: I think anytime you, that, so was this just a one person, like a a one editor event, like that? She was the star attraction or he yeah. or, yep. okay. Yeah. I think those are actually the riskiest. Because <laughs> um, if, if you have an event that has, you know, multiple speakers, you know, it, there's always going to be, Even if the organizers do a perfect job, there's always like a dud or a few duds. Um, And so, but that's okay because there's so many other things that you can, other people you can listen to and learn from. There's usually a variety of activities. So I find that this is, um, this is probably very unfair of me, but I'll say it anyway. I find that the likelihood of you wasting your money uh, probably, uh, Increases in direct proportion to the bigger, bigger and wealthier the city, and the more associated it is with publishing. So I would be especially wary of events taking place in New York um, or any other publishing center, because I think that people in New York publishing, in particular, or people who have reputations or prestige or status, they're trafficking in that, and they see a way to. I don't think they're. They don't see themselves as bilking people out of their money, but they're, they're trading on reputation rather than maybe some other things that are even more important. So I should probably stop there before I get in trouble. (laughs) That's awesome.
0: (laughs) As we get Jane blacklisted from all future (laughs) publishing conferences. Um, I did want to answer you, we were talking about Audible and how authors are discovered there. And it, really you're not, unless you're already selling a lot of books. They do have the also bots, but whenever I surf through the carousels, it's only like 10 books and it's super popular, a ton of, re, you know, stars and stuff already. So that's, that's kind of the challenge as an indie with audio books is, you know, you you have to invest more money in it unless you do it yourself in your closet and, you know, and, and then you're investing time and it's, you know, I'm looking forward to hopefully being invited someday to submit to Spotify because I feel like just what I know from the music side, that's probably going to be a decent discovery tool possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we'll see, but right now it's tough. It's like you basically try to sell a lot of eBooks and hope that people click on the audiobook link on your book page on Amazon and sell some audiobooks that way.
2: Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's fascinating. I mean, there's a company I I'm probably going to mess up the pronunciation. Zebralution, I think is it's a UK based company and they're trying to take books, although albeit it's nonfiction, I think for the most part and put them into Spotify into playlists, um, trying to like wedge books into, (laughs) into a place that they're not, they don't entirely fit that well yet. And I I'm hoping that Spotify does something that would be more welcoming of that type of content that would make it a little easier. Because I think you're right about the discoverability piece. Now the money piece, I I don't know. I think that's what folks are worried about since there's all these horror stories about Spotify and how much they pay musicians.
0: Right. That's kind of what I'd be hoping to trade. Like if I got a bunch of new fans by not making a lot, but by having my stuff there and then they come and buy the, permanent mm-hmm. copies well you know we'll have to see <laughs> for you know for sure and but i i am just curious about that because i know like with pandora also it often selects things for you based on your tastes and sometimes you do get songs that are obscure and they're mm-hmm. not necessarily just the top 20 so maybe there's hope you know if somebody's out there looking for sci-fi romance with uh humans instead of aliens that that particular niche you know, that will help them find them i don't know <laughs> Um, are you finding that you mentioned with publishers, you know, being pressured into possibly KU and the other subscription services? I, I know I was advised, like, if I wanted to sell more audiobooks to put exclusive content in the audiobooks, like maybe a Q and A or interview with the narrator or something afterwards. Um, are publishers thinking of that at all to like preserve paperback sales or is that something we should be thinking about with all these subscription services? Like make have another product. That is sort of the pre- the premium versus like this is almost the free ad supported kind of product.
2: Mm. Let's see. It's it's something I haven't thought about. Um, I do think publishers are looking at. I don't think they've gotten that like I don't think they've seen uh, cannibalization of sales yet. Um, I think for the most part, audiobooks have been on top of what they currently enjoy in terms of at at least print sales. It's possible that there might be some attrition in ebook. Um, I think they're also finding in some cases that people like having both the print and the audio as this can be especially true in in nonfiction. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, Yeah, I don't have a good answer.
0: All right. Well, that's just something I'm thinking of as a, you know, like maybe that's something I will do if it looks like, you know, more and more people just want to subscribe and listen essentially for free or for their $10 a month. Um, you had mentioned COVID earlier. I'm just curious what kind of changes you've seen this year with the publishing industry. And if you think they those changes are kind of for good now. So the biggest change
2: by far is that sales are through the roof. Uh, on print and digital. I think publishing, traditional publishing is going to have its best year since maybe 2010, which is just, it's astonishing. I mean, traditional publishing is a mature industry. It, it is lucky if it grows 1% in a year, if it's down 1%, people also consider that pretty good. (laughs) So it's, and for 2020, it's probably going to be up somewhere between 7 and, 8, 7 and 8%. It's just um, eye-popping. And it's because people have more time. Um, I think the, the other good part about this for those looking at the Europe market, and I think this applies to indie authors as well as traditional publishers, is that people who are the never-evers, of ebooks. I would, like they say, I will never ever read an ebook. They have now finally conceded to reading them because that's the only way they could get a book during lockdown. So I think we have seen an opening up of the digital market. Um, certainly Overdrive has seen it, Kobo has seen it, uh, Published Drive has seen it. And I think that will have really long-lasting effects for eBooks. Um, I'm not sure about the audio. I haven't really heard much specifically on that side, but su- we know that subscription services are up generally, um, and those tend to be driven by audio. So I think that's good. It's good news for authors, I think. The, the downside for those who care about literary culture, um, who care about independent bookstore survival, I think that they're definitely the losers. And it's just remains to be seen um, how that will play out. Looking at the bright side again, there was the launch of a bookshop uh, in January of 2020, which this is the virtuous alternative to Amazon, uh, or so-called. Uh, some independent bookstores disagree with it being a virtuous alternative. They think maybe it's just taking sales away from Independent bookstores, people who would have shopped at their local store and now will just shop at bookshop. But in any event, it's launched by people who care pretty deeply about preserving independent bookstores. And a lot of the their profits, in fact, go to supporting the independent bookstore community. So I think the the people who started it, their hearts in the right place, and they have seen like when they when they launched, they didn't know the pandemic was coming. And They were planning, you know, maybe in two or three years, they would get their 1% of Amazon's sales That, that they called it snatching a crumb from the giant's mouth. And they were able to achieve that, I think, within the first month of the pandemic, um, And they, you know, they were just kind of hanging on by the skin of their teeth through the summer just to keep up with demand. And now they've uh, launched in the UK because the community there was like, we need you, we need you to come here and help us. Um, And so now they're supporting independent bookstores there.
1: All right. Now, you know, speaking of, you mentioned this earlier as well, but uh, speaking of when people talk about publishing, they talk about the big insert number and, uh, it, the big five is where we are right now, and it seems like that number is going down. Um, is traditional publishing just overall contracting, and what sort of consequences could that sort of have for us?
2: Yeah, so there's uh, quite a bit of disagreement on this. Um, we're currently at the big five. It'll likely be the – I think it's going to be the big four. Uh, for how I don't know how long this deal will take to pass through – you know, all of the regulations that it's gonna have to go through. But let's say by the end of twenty twenty one or thereabouts, something people who are like members of the authors guild or who are traditionally published literary agents, these are the folks who say this is terrible, terrible, terrible. It's gonna result in lower advances, less less risk taking, it gives publishers too much power. You you can't you can't leave an offer on the table and go somewhere else. Um, I have a little bit of a different view. I mean, I, there's obviously going to be some lost jobs. There will be some consolidation, um, but Simon and Schuster, the company that's getting acquired, it was already owned by a big media conglomerate. So, like all of the big publishers are owned by really big conglomerates and they kind of behave in similar ways. It's not like Penguin Random House is eating up this prized eccentric, I don't know, outsider company, and it's going to assimilate it (laughs) like the Borg. Like it's not, that's not what's going to happen. It's, it's two companies just, you know, creating efficiencies in in their supply chain and their warehousing, you know, in the back office functions. That's how I see it. Um, and the other thing is that Simon and Schuster, and I know I'm focusing on that particular deal. I'll get to some of the wider ramifications, but, um, I don't know that it was publishing, literary publishing was all that as served, um, by Simon and Schuster's owner, which was Viacom, CBS, like Simon Schuster was this piddling little thing off that made not as much money as the rest of its media empire. So it actually seems better in some way that it will now be owned by a company that's actually pretty squarely in book publishing, um, Bertelsmann, which is a German company that owns a lot of book publishing operations. So I don't know, we'll see, but I definitely traditional publishing has been, um, I don't know if I, uh, yeah, I think contracting is a fair word. It's, it's been doing this since the seventies or the eighties. Um, and it, some are optimistic and think it creates room for innovation and small independent publishers. Um, others think that it's really hard for small publishers to survive when they have to deal with the likes of Amazon with Amazon's foot on their necks. Um, I guess we'll see. I don't know. I hope that wasn't a wishy-washy answer.
1: No, it was, uh, you know, that's uh, about the amount of certainty that we can expect in this sort of industry. Um uh, just this is just sort of a, an idle musing on my part, but like surely there were not always five or six or four like the number of big publishers it's it's it it developed naturally so like is there the likelihood that someone will come up and become the new number 5 if number 5 goes away like how does this industry develop yeah. like this
2: well you know frankly i think amazon publishing could be the big could be the could be one of the other big publishers i mean it already puts out how many titles? It's like more than a thousand titles a year. And I'm not, I'm not counting all the self-publishing activity. I'm just looking at the two dozen imprints that it operates. Uh, It's a really sizable operation that rivals in my mind, any big publishing company. Um, And let's see what else. Do we have like if you look, if you broaden your idea of what a publisher is, you look at companies like Storytel, uh, they're doing originals and exclusives, they're becoming publishers themselves. They have to, on some level, to make the economics of subscription work because if they've developed the content themselves in house, then they can earn more money on a subscription rather than having to pay out a royalty to a publisher. So it's, I would not be surprised to see companies like Storytel, uh, Wattpad, maybe, um, people who are on more in the, in media and subscription, um, and have ways of attracting very large direct consumer audiences,
0: all right. So switching tracks a little bit. Um, I don't think I mentioned it in the intro, but you also have courses on your site. And one of them is how to find, how to land a book deal in 2021. For those interested in the tradition, traditional publishing world, what has changed in recent years? And is it still worth trying to get an agent and <laughs> a publisher now that we might be down to four big guys and Anna- <laughs> Amazon possibly? <laughs> yes. Um, I,
2: I think it's still worth it depending on what you want out of, out of your career, what you, what you want out of traditional publishing. If you, if you have eyes wide open, in other words, like you understand the game that you're entering into and how it's played, and you're willing to take advantage of the publisher as much as as possible for your own purposes. Um, So if you like, if you're trying to launch a New York Times bestseller, if you want, um, especially if you're a nonfiction author in one of the major like self-help, health, parenting, business sort of categories, if you're a literary fiction author, which I think is really hard to get traction for, if you're self-publishing, uh, if, if you're a poet, if you're writing a memoir, if you're writing this sort of like book club fiction that Reese Witherspoon picks, like these are all the sorts of books where I think traditional publishing really understands how to make those books, package them, get them in front of the right people, break them out, um, both for good and ill. I think we saw how they can do that in a marvelous way. That is also disastrous with, um, Oh, I'm going kind to of blank. It was the novel that came out in January before the pandemic, about the immigrants crossing the border. Um, boy, brain fog. But I think I think some of your listeners may know what what book I'm referring to. So that it got hugely criticized um, for not being a, a a great portrayal of the immigrant experience. Um, so they can launch these sorts of books really well and push them to the top of the list by like, just kind of like sheer will and, and getting them spread as far as possible to all the influencers. So if that's the sort of experience you're looking for, um, I think traditional publishing still can do it. And if you're writing a book that fits kind of that, that mode or that model, uh, I think, I think it's worth a try. I think it become in my mind. And I, I know that Lindsay, you have your own opinion about whether someone should self-publish first or traditionally publish first, which I think we'll get to. But I think it's, for me, I see it's easier to transition from, okay, I've done some traditional publishing projects, and now I'm going to go out on my own, because I've I've seen how the sausage gets made, and now I know what's important and what's not. Um Okay, so but to back back to your original question, which was how has landing a book deal changed? And I think, as far as selling a novel, it I don't know that it has changed that much. It's just what's popular at the moment or what's in the zeitgeist. is it, it's, it's like fashion. It's there's always something that. Agents or editors are looking for diversity and inclusion. Is lighting a fire under a lot of people right now? So you'll see lots of calls for works about and by people of color. I don't think it's a trend or a fad, but like this year has just put that really fun front and center on everyone's um, submission guidelines and wish list. Um, and there's a lot less, I think, patience for stories that just look the same as they always did. Um, you know, even just like, say, 10 years ago. So you have to really be paying attention closely to the sorts of deals that are kind of going by in publishersmarketplace.com to understand what fiction is selling uh, to the big to the big houses. Um, For nonfiction, the, the platform is everything and it just becomes more and more and more important as the years pass because publishers become less uh less willing to take on a risk, they have to see that you've already got an audience.
3: Lindsay was wondering if the title of the book was American Dirt.
0: Yes. Yes, that's, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: okay. So in one of your recent hot sheets, you mentioned that Ingram is now advising publishers to focus on direct consumer marketing tac- tactics instead of business to business, as was previously the case. Um, some of the methods you recommended taking a look at included reviews, metadata ads, and search engine optimization. What advice do you have? And yes, to the listeners, I am reading my question. <laughs> what advice do you have for small and single author publishers when it comes to search engine optimization and using smart metadata and then also how about reviews and ads Mm -hmm. and just as to the first of that and then i'll ask a little bit more about reviews after that okay
2: i mean honestly i think the three of you know as much more than i do this is something that i like i study and i go to conferences and learn about um but it's not something I do firsthand. Like I, I'm not writing and publishing my own fiction, and I'm not running ad campaigns. So I have to rely a lot on what the community is saying and what people are complaining about in Facebook groups. Um, so I, I think if I look at the sorts of messages I see coming from distributors and from independent authors alike, I think if authors want to lay a strong foundation, they've got they first have to get the book description and the cover. And the category all in alignment. So like there's just you have to understand the genre and the subgenre you're working in and how to brand that in a way that speaks to the reader, yes, this book is for me. This is the sort of thing that I'm going to enjoy. Um I know you had an author on the show, this has probably been a year ago, I'm not going to remember the name, uh, I'm failing on all memory tasks tonight, but he, I think he writes mil- like a speculative military sorts of thrillers, um, and he understood that the military audience would really recognize particular um sorts of symbols or aesthetic on the cover. He was trying to echo something that his audience would know. And it, and it was clear he was very successful at doing that. He was able to speak to that audience. So I think that is like kind of, that's job number one, like understanding and nailing that foundation. Once that's in place, I think authors often underestimate the value of revisiting those book descriptions. You know, I I don't want to say like, you should be revisiting it even every three months. But publishers at this point, if they're being smart, they're revisiting it at least every year. And they're also keeping tabs on any current events or they have alerts set up that show them when there's movement on the title that they wouldn't have expected so in other words, they're, they're getting signals that, oh, there must be something going on that's affecting search through Amazon or search through Google that is surfacing this book more often than it would ordinarily. And then you get in, figure out what's driving that, and you change the description. Um, so those descriptions, you want them to feel fresh. They should reference things that are happening now. So um, I think it's important for both fiction and nonfiction alike. Um and let's see. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention was, as far as the advertising goes, I mean, it's clear to me that there has to be testing. It has to be monitored. And there has to be patience, like to see these campaigns play out. Um, but I don't I know that for small publishers, they can see a lot of success by simply, being really smart about what titles they're advertising against, especially titles that might be in the news and might be popping more than usual. Uh, There was a really good case study from Ingram on a, a memoir that gained traction because another memoir on the exact same topic was on 60 Minutes. And so the small, it was a very small publisher took advantage of that by advertising this 10 year old book against the one that was on 60 minutes. And they saw a 200% sales jump, which then once the news cycle passed and that book wasn't in the news anymore. The, this old memoir still saw increased sales for many months out. So it raised the daily average after the ad campaign was finished. So it has really long lasting
3: effects when you get it right, uh, a good ad. This is, yes. this is very true. And I've noticed that myself. Um, let's see. It was actually Joe who came up with American Dirt. I feel bad. I was like, Lindsay said it because I wasn't reading very well. Um, and then Lindsay, did you want to say something?
0: No, I just forgot you had a second half to your paragraph question. (laughs) (laughs) I I do. And it was Jason
3: on spot or on spot. Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, Okay. So my other part of the question was, so reviews, I did ask about those, but what role should paid reviews play in a successful author's business plan? So I'm like talking like, you know, Kirkus, things like that.
2: Ah, okay. If you're a children's author, and you're going to have a marketing campaign that targets librarians or booksellers, educators, kind of like the gatekeepers for children, I think those paid reviews can be very helpful. But on their own, they mean nothing. Like it has to be part of a bigger package of things like um, customer reviews or or other sorts of endorsements. Um, So I think they can be a bright spot in a, in a good package of materials that helps convince someone that your book ought to be picked up or acquired or whatever. Um, but for a genre fiction author, especially a romance author, I don't, I'm not sure I would be investing in a a paid Kirkus review or a paid any review. Um, I, I often see authors who are putting out their first book and they feel like, I I don't feel like I have a real book unless I have a review from a recognized review outlet. And I think that's just a, for me, it's a very kind of old fashioned way of thinking. I don't think that's really how self-publishing operates. So, um, but I'm happy to be disagreed with if any of you really prize those Kirkus reviews.
0: I've never paid for one. I'm always like, they'll pop, I'll pay the $500 and they'll think my book sucked and then my ego will be crushed and my wallet also. Uh, so I was curious, and you kind of already answered this. Um, if you think, if somebody's thinking, I want to maybe traditional publish, but, should I start out self-publishing and, you know, build a platform first? Like how much are the agents and publishers going to look at that? Or what if you self-publish and don't sell anything? Is that going to be a detriment if you want to try to get a traditional deal? Yeah. So what do you recommend? Should people, if they're interested, should they try a traditional first? Or I don't know, it's such a long process. That's usually why I tell people self-publish under a pen name. If you're worried about it, you know, try mm. to make some money first. And then yeah. while, you know work on the traditional thing too, on another series or something.
2: Yeah. I, if it's a genre fiction author and it's someone who's working on a series and, and I I just, you know, I talk a lot one-on-one with authors and I just, I, I try to get a read on their energy level and kind of their suitability for being more entrepreneurial and for experimenting and just being capable of dealing with online marketing and being like very online focused. I also try to suss out their how much they have wrapped up in the prestige or the status game that, uh, tends to go along with wanting a traditional publishing deal or having an agent and these sorts of things. Not, not no, none of that is wrong, but you need to know upfront what it is you want out of all this. And so I think that really affects your attitude, um, how you approach it, how quickly you give up, so I try to figure out the person's barometer on on all these issues before making a specific suggestion but to 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 go back to where I was headed as genre fiction author with a series, especially in romance or um science fiction fantasy, it feels like i mean self publishing is equally valid equally viable if if you're willing to learn about kind of the business principles at play by, like, by listening to this podcast or taking any of the courses that are offered by some of the experts on self publishing, um, I think that traditional publishing offers kind of right now a much kind of slower career development experience uh, with not a whole lot of certainty because I think the really, depressing thing about traditional publishing right now is how quickly they will drop someone if they're not performing at a certain level. And it's just really heartbreaking because, you know, now I'll show my old fashioned side. I think that traditional publishers should be nurturing authors, especially novelists, um, on some level and helping them Reach that point when they break out at novel four or novel five, because you know it takes some work. It takes quite a few novels under your belt and out on the market before you're going going to start gaining traction or momentum and finding your audience. So some authors I find they would really benefit from having that traditional publisher help shepherd that um, and get them on their way. And then others I think you know you you have so you have the right energy. I think you're just better off. Going straight to self-publishing, and if you want to traditionally publish later, that's fine. I don't think it, even if you crash and burn as a self-published author, you can still go traditional with a new project. You can't expect to sell the stuff that failed, but with a, something new, sure, you can. You can go find an agent. You're not. There's no. There's no single book that's I think ends the career just because you chose the wrong publishing path for it.
0: I feel like almost no authors that finish their first book want to learn the marketing They're, you know, so they go to traditional publishing sometimes because they, they feel the publisher will deal with all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it seems like if you get like a six figure advance, maybe they will, mm-hmm. but what do you think? Are publishers still, are they spending money on new authors that maybe just got like a $5,000 advance or do you kind of have to learn the marketing either way you go?
2: You have to know the marketing either way. Um, I do think publishers can be quite, like I mentioned earlier at how they launched American dirt into the stratosphere. And, you know, they spent at least a year on that campaign. Uh, there, there is another book that's been successful, Mexican Gothic. Um, I'm trying, I think it's on the New York Times bestseller list right now, and it's on a lot of gift guides. And I attended a, a panel where the publicists talked about that book. And I don't know what advance the author received, but, you know, they did focus groups, uh, at, um, like in Chicago before the book long before the book came out to figure out exactly how the cover should look. They did a, a brand partnership with a lipstick company to develop a lipstick that, went with the novel, they did paper dolls. That was a suggestion of the author. Um, it was a collaborative relationship. I mean, it wasn't the publisher just going off on their own. It was definitely collaborative and very successful marketing campaign. So when you, for that type of book, I can see how a publisher's marketing support really makes a big difference, but how many books get that support? Like one a season, You know, so you are kind of betting on, can, can I be that author that's getting the attention that's getting the care? Most are getting kind of a rote sort of marketing plan, which would be like, okay, we're going to send it to the usual reviewers. We're going to send it to the usual outlets, media. We're going to give you a month of publicity support, and then we're out of here. So then it's really up to the author to figure out, okay, how can I capitalize on the fact I've got a traditional publisher imprint on the back of my book. What doors can I open with that? Um, How can I make the most of it?
1: Sort of continuing with that thought, we're going to be talking a little bit about the, uh, the business side of writing. And one of the things that's frequently been cited as an asset for a self-publisher is that we tend to have a lot more flexibility and nimbleness when it comes to marketing and promotion because we're in control of the entire process. Uh, In a recent newsletter, you had a piece about what traditional publishers are doing now for marketing. Uh, What are traditional publishers doing now and has it changed uh, (laughs) recently?
2: Yes. So this is, uh, when you read that piece, I wonder if you might've, um, read between the lines that some of my exasperation (laughs) with hearing publicists talk about how they're still trying to do pre-publication marketing during COVID, uh, which for those who might not be familiar with a pre-publication marketing campaign, this is where you blanket the world with advanced reading copies, quite literally like you and you, it's a beautiful, like, package you ship out. Like you've got an advanced copy of the book. They try to put things in the package that will be pretty on Instagram. And, but right now you can't do that. Um, they don't have access to the books in most cases, cause they're working from home. They don't have the resource and the materials to create these beautiful packages and where they would normally send the packages. People aren't there to receive them. So, uh, you know, a, publicists are really complaining about what do we do when we can't spend our ARCs it's just like seriously like this is what you think your big problem is and uh, it's to me it's just um it's it, this year calls for innovation and you know there are publishers who are innovating um, there are some who are doing some of the investment that they should have been doing for all along now, like email, newsletter, list building, Um, being more thoughtful about, you know, the sorts of communication they send out to booksellers. Um, They're doing more virtual events, of course, everyone is. um, And they are trying to be more nimble, although I don't think by a long shot, they're as nimble as the average indie author. I mean, to be fair, they can't be when they're trying to manage you know, it could be a hundred titles that they have coming out in a season that they're overseeing. So there's only so much that they can do.
0: Yeah, this year's certainly been the businesses that are able to pivot and figure out the online marketing or, you know, pick up your food outside of the store kind of thing. And uh, those who haven't been able to, and it's it's tough, you know, for those who are not able to move as quickly. I feel fortunate that as indie authors, we've kind of been doing the right stuff all along because that's the only route we've really had. Nobody's inviting us to signings and that kind of thing. So, I mean, yay, (laughs) yay (laughs) indies, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think indies have a really good
2: direct relationship with their readers and publishers are still, still catching up still learning what that's about. I think some of the smaller publishers that were already, like they already had a good foundation of direct-to-reader, direct-to-consumer communication. They've actually done really well because they people have been more willing to buy direct during COVID and to buy from smaller suppliers or um, because they realized the importance of it, of buying local or, or purchasing from a diverse set of people or places. So those publishers have ha- actually have done done pretty well. Um, but yeah, the, (laughs) what, as far as what publishers are doing differently, I think, I think they're, frankly, they're, they're struggling on some level because they depend so much on, on, on bookstore commitments and, and promo and, and bookstores are closed or are just very limited in what they can do right now.
0: Yeah. The, the small publishers that are like putting anthologies up on Kickstarter and things like that, you know, they're, they're in there and they know what to do. Um, so I am curious, you have a course on ghostwriting too. And, uh, you know, I've known a few indie authors that got their start that way and like really learned how to be productive and sort of, I'll say the formulas, you know, not necessarily that you have to be formulaic as a ghostwriter, but I'm curious, like here at the end of 2020, is this still, Like what are people doing to like get gigs? Is it so viable? Is the pay decent? Or is this being outsourced to countries where people will do it for a lot less?
2: Uh, Yeah, so I I can only speak to this on the traditional side. I know there's a lot of funny business that might happen on the self-publishing author side, where there's lots of outsourcing to cheap labor in other countries. (laughs) Uh, just, but judging on scandals that I see come up on Twitter, but on traditional publishing, usually there's a lot of ghostwriting that happens. Yes. Um, And a lot of it is unspoken, not revealed and it pays really, really well. I mean, I don't think you could get a ghostwriter on a project, probably for less than twenty to $30,000, and that's on the low end. Um, but of course, it, it'll depend on the type of book that it is. Often what happens is in traditional publishing, you are you have an agent who is kind of hooked into that, uh, knows who's looking for a ghostwriter, and, and they play matchmaker. Um, it's possible that you could have clients coming directly to you. It depends on where you live and what communities you're in. But a lot of the work tends to come through agents, at least as, as the sorts of ghostwriting that I'm familiar with.
3: Yeah. I've got a friend who's um, not a writer. She's, but she's got this really incredible story that needs to be told. It's a mem- going to be a memoir, but um, fiction like anyway, the ghostwriter she's paying is charging 60,000 and yeah. he's pretty yeah. good. So I'm like, well, that's a lot of money. I, Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: That's, to, that's a totally, ignore, that's more like what I would expect um, yeah. for an average book.
3: Yeah. Yeah. When gets, she, <sighs> sorry, when she told me that, I was like, that's a lot of money. But then when I researched into it, I was like, holy cow, that's like average. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay. So um, what portion of royalties for the average publisher and author do you feel are affected by piracy, including audiobook returns, which is something you mentioned in one of your hot sheets, how people like audibles, their policies allow for returns for like a year or whatever. Um, and should authors ever be worried about that?
2: This is always a tough question. I think because there's the issue of control. I don't know how much authors can really control what's happening. And so while there might be some occasions with some types of authors where it is affecting earnings, what you can do about it is fairly limited. And I tend to be of the, like my life philosophy is to focus more on what you can control and to look at the things that, um, that will reward those who are going to, you know, be fair dealing with you that aren't interested in piracy to some extent. I, you know, Pirate's gonna pirate. I don't know that trying to take like issue, take down notices and do the blasty stuff and all the rest of it. I don't, I don't know how terribly effective that is in the end at stopping um, the bad actors. Now there are some occasions where there are just blatant pirate sites that need to be taken down. Like I think A-Bike was one of the recent ones, and when those crop up you know, organizations like Authors Guild and and others, I think even Amazon was involved in the latest. Um, Those sites get taken down. And I think those actually tend to be the more damaging ones because it's more out in the open. They attract thousands and thousands of people and those tend to come down really quickly. Um, So I guess the short answer is just try try to just do your work, focus on the people who want to pay and forget about the rest. I hope that's not too um, dismissive, but that's how I feel. I, I ain't got the time <laughs> to worry about those others.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good advice. Uh, yeah, the whole whack a mole thing is, is tremendous. You can you can spend an awful lot of time not really noticeably affecting anything. Yeah. Uh I had a I had a fan one time who was writing back and forth a bunch of emails and uh, compared one of my books to Enemy Mine. And I was like, I haven't read Enemy Mine. Like, oh, let me send you a link. And they sent me a link to a piracy site for getting Enemy Mine. I was like, um, I wonder if you bought my book. <laughs> but uh, and this is a potentially a pretty quick question to sort of finish up this section. Um most people are familiar with like writing articles as a freelance job you might have if you're a writer uh, and we've just discussed ghostwriting as another thing that a writer can do uh, besides you know producing their own fiction are there other viable means for a fiction author to supplement their income within the literary world
2: oh sure there there are lots of things you can do i mean it depends on what sort of activities you enjoy but let's say you actively read lots of books and, and you write about them or you blog about them, there's affiliate marketing through Amazon or bookshop, which can bring you, I mean, it's not going to probably bring you hundreds and hundreds of dollars every month, but you know, it, it can be, it can cover your water bill maybe if you're doing a lot of that sort of activity. Um, there's Patreon. I think that's, um, Lindsay mentioned earlier, you know, what if you're trying to, convince people that there's more to experience beyond the audio or outside of the subscription. And for people who really love your stuff, Patreon is a great way I think to capture those fans and decide, okay, what, what special thing can I offer people who that aren't the pirates that are going to buy every book as it comes out mine, even want the box set um, the, and my autograph on it. So J- Jason Sanford is someone I've had my eye on. He does the genre grapevine newsletter, and he also puts out some short stories and does some other things through his Patreon account that, and he looks from the outside, I think he looks pretty successful doing it. Um, I've seen it work for literary fiction writers as well. There's a a novelist, Monica Byrne, who had her debut novel come out on about seven years ago. And it got a lot of critical acclaim, but as with most literary novels, I doubt the sales were enough to really, you know, make that big of a financial difference in her life. So her Patreon account, um, She built it up at that time and she now gets maybe three to four thousand dollars a month from people who are basically just giving her money so that she can keep writing literary novels that don't earn money through traditional sales. So if you're Patreon's not for everyone, I don't want to sell it as a panacea. It's certainly not, but I I think it does offer a way to for, for you to reach and satisfy the true fans in your career. Um there are also emerging fiction platforms i don't i wonder if any of you have played around with things like um tap from wattpad or um I'm trying to think of some of the other uh, uh radish is another couple couple more that i've seen out there where it's it's more gamified fiction and i it, it would be interesting i think uh you know maybe you offer bonuses or premiums um through those channels when you have a book launch um, and then depending on the monetization system of, of the platform, you might be able to get some sort of payout, or maybe you just, you're better able to serve your fans in that way. So yeah, those are off the top of my head. Those are some of the things that come to mind.
0: Yeah. We haven't had anybody on yet that's done radish, but I've, I know they tried to get me at one point, and <laughs> they've, but they've, I've heard of people actually making money. I think it's from the advertising revenue and, and Wattpad also has gone that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. So if anybody out there is making some good money, let us know. We'd love to have you on. Um, I guess we should kind of wrap things up. Is there, well, thank you for talking to us this evening, staying up late. I guess your cat gave up or settled in your lap. I haven't seen the tail go by for a bit. She's on my lap. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good place. Uh, uh, thank you. And where can people find you online? And maybe tell us about the hot sheet, you know, or whatever you want to plug. Uh, that, but, you know, the people might be interested in checking out.
2: So the best place to go to find out all the things I do is my website, that's janefriedman.com. And you can learn about Hot Sheet or make your way to Hot Sheet from that site. So Hot Sheet's the paid newsletter that I do. It comes out every two weeks. It's really what I call business intelligence for authors. So it's like The Economist, uh, but easier to read, I hope, where you're getting information on trends, things that are happening in the industry, things that affect both traditional publishing and self publishing. So it's it's meant to, I hope, save some time of like deciding does does this article deserve my attention? What's the latest on the scandal? Uh so I try to cover it all in a way that um it just summarizes just the things you you might need to know as an author.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I like that and, and the Summer Book Show podcast and stuff because I try to especially when I'm writing You know, stay off the social media as much as possible. Just do the minimum for the readers. But it's nice to know when big news is happening. So people should definitely check it out. All right. Well, thank you, Jane. And thank you everyone for listening and to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. And I will put the links to uh, Jane's site and the courses that I was curious about (laughs) and kept mentioning and anything else that I can think of. (laughs) Thanks everyone. Have a great week. See everyone later. (laughs) Later.
3: So long, everybody.